morning, Hagerstown Church. Um, as uh, Pastor Chris mentioned, my name is Jason Rami, and I'm a member here at Hagerstown Church, and I'm really grateful for the uh, opportunity to bring God's Word to you this morning. Um, this morning we are continuing our 10-part series that was started last week by Pastor Josh examining our members' covenant. And the members' covenant is an essential document in the life of Hagerstown Church. The items that are um, in it that we have covenanted to do or abide by as a congregation are all uh, Bible-based. And we take them so seriously that we require a signature confirming agreement with the covenant of anybody who joins our church. Additionally, failure to abide by what we have covenanted together to do will result in correction, rebuke, and even church discipline. So we do take that very seriously. A member's covenant, as uh, Pastor Josh uh, defined it last week, is a local, collective, and explicit promise before God and to each other that we will submit ourselves to Jesus' authority. So I'm going to repeat that. It's a local, collective, and explicit promise before God and to each other that we will submit ourselves to Jesus' authority. Last week, Pastor Josh looked at the first point in our covenant, which says we will submit ourselves to the authority of Christ through his word. And today, uh, we will submit ourselves to his authority as we use his word to examine the second item in the covenant, which is our main point this morning. And it reads, we will work and pray for the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So our main point, which is the second item in our members' covenant, is that we will work and pray for the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And as we will see today and throughout the series, since all the points in the members' covenant are Bible-based, violating any of the final nine uh, is an automatic violation of the first one. So let's turn together to God's word. Um, so our text this morning is going to be Ephesians 4, 1 through 5. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 5. That's found on page 1,161 of the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 5. This reads, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who came here and who died on the cross for our sins. We thank you for the privilege of being able to meet here together to study your word and to learn about the great salvation that you provided for us and the life that you have called us to live. We also ask, Father, this morning that as we worship together, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Amen. So this morning we're going to examine this scripture that we just uh, read, uh, as well as multiple other scripture, to determine, uh, number one, what the unity of the Spirit is, and second, why is it so important that we placed it in our members' covenant so that we would work and pray for it? And then we are going to look at some ways that we as a body made up of many members can go about fulfilling 
this part um, of the covenant, how we maintain it. <clears throat> but before we start this, I want to spend some time looking at what Jesus said about this unity. The words of Paul in uh, Philippians that Dan read for us earlier and in Ephesians that I just read, uh, of course, are Jesus' words as well. But he also addressed this issue directly uh, when he was on earth in the flesh. So let's turn um, to John 17, 20 through 23. John 17, 20 through 23. That's on page 1074 of the Pew Bibles. John 17, 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's Jesus praying. That they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also meet, may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. This is a portion of what is referred to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus, and unity was such an important topic that he took the time to address it with the Father just a few minutes before he was arrested and then later crucified. He was asking the Father for us, for unity for us. He was talking about those who will believe through the apostolic witness down the generations, and that is us. He compares the unity that he desires with us with the unity that he has with the Father and has had it with the Father from eternity past. And he considers the perfection of that unity to be the result of our oneness with him, that is with Jesus, and his oneness with the Father. So with that in mind, let's uh, try to address the three main points that uh, we already mentioned. What is this unity of the Spirit? Why should we work and pray for it? And how do we maintain it? So the first point or question is, what is this unity of the Spirit? So I want to start out by saying what it is not. It's not the absence of denominations and administrative divisions. It's not the formation of a visible worldwide church whose members don't agree with each other on most important things. And it's not an organization that prioritizes artificial unity over doctrine. And it's not a collaboration between churches on social issues, and it's not the absence of healthy discussions about different points of view over non-essential matters. So there's a lot of this going on, but none of these are signs of unity, and none of these are what Jesus had prayed for. So from a positive standpoint, what is it? I have read and studied a lot of definitions and tried to combine them into this one. So the unity of the spirit is an internal unity of common life produced by a sovereign act of the Holy Spirit founded on sound doctrine. So I'm going to say that again. The unity of the Spirit is an internal unity of common life produced by a sovereign act of the Holy Spirit founded on sound doctrine. And as we saw in John 17, Jesus asked the Father for this unity just before his arrest. And with all not answer that prayer, but, uh, but I don't agree with that. A few decades after Jesus prayed that prayer, the Apostle Paul was explaining to us the mystery of the church when he said in Ephesians 4.4, 4, which we just read, that there is one body and one spirit, 
This unity is a matter of the inner Christian life and as a person is regenerated by the Holy Spirit and that spirit dwells in him or her and seals him as a guarantee of his inheritance and joins him to the body of the church. There is one Holy Spirit and the bride of Christ is one church. And as more believers are added and indwelt by the same Holy Spirit and joined to the same church, that internal unity, which is indestructible, proves that the Father has answered the prayer of Jesus in John 17. So we have that in us already, and Jesus asked for it, and the Father answered it. Now that unity, although it's internal, when it's present will, in a healthy church, will have external manifestations that we can alter through our conduct. But these are only manifestations, but the unity itself is internal and it is permanent. So it's a living and vital uh, and not a mechanical unity. It only exists in the lives where the Holy Spirit reigns and can only be understood and experienced in terms of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And based on what we said so far, this unity is created in us. Neither the word of God nor our covenant ask us to create it. Neither can we. It results from our position as children of God and is founded on truth and sound doctrine. So let's look at that. If we go back to Ephesians, where this command appears in verse 3 of chapter 4, and we put it in context, we see that, as in most of his letters, Paul starts out by laying a strong doctrinal foundation in the first half of the letter. Here it's in chapters 1 through 3 and follows it by instruction on how we should live out this doctrine. Chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, and I encourage you to read them uh, when you go home, teach us about our calling, the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, the salvation that we have by grace through faith, and the mystery of the gospel. And this lays the foundation for our identity as Christians and our secure position as sons of God. So I want to pay special attention to a few verses from chapter 2. I want you to listen as I read them and see how they address the issue of peace and unity. So you can turn, if you want, to Ephesians 2, verse 13. It's Ephesians 2, verse 13. And that's um, found just a couple of pages before the, before the paragraph that we read earlier on. Verse 13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You see what Christ did in his perfect life on earth and his death on the cross is bring peace between the person who believes and God and also between those who believe among themselves. We were born by nature God's enemies, and we were also enemies of each other. Jew against Gentile, black against white, slave against free, and so on. And we see so much of that in our society right now, uh, and it's a result of our sinful nature that separates us from God and makes it impossible for us to please him. 
but Jesus lived a sinless life and fully and absolutely pleased God. And sinless as he is, he died on the cross and paid the penalty for our sins. Those who repent and believe in him are reconciled to God according to this passage and multiple passages of scripture. And what else did he do? He also reconciled people who were previously enemies with each other and made them one body and killed the hostility between them. So after having been God's enemies and each other's enemies, we are reconciled and have access to the Father in one spirit, according to verse 18. And this is the spirit whose unity we enjoy. And as Paul transitions from chapter 3 and instructs us to be eager to maintain this unity of the spirit, he does so with the word therefore, meaning that what he is going to tell us now is the result and it's based on what he has already said in the first three chapters. So the truth and doctrine that he discusses in the first three chapters require a response and a living out of that doctrine. And that's what he talks about starting in chapter 4. In verse 1 he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And the calling is everything that he had described in the first three chapters. Worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So as he urges us to maintain the unity of the spirit, he is saying that it's a natural result of our calling, which he had discussed and proven in the first three chapters, and it's not a separate or random request that he's making at this stage. Now, the fact that this unity is internal does not mean that it doesn't have external manifestations. In the same way that James tells us that faith without works is dead, and from the standpoint of an individual Christian, um, then also from the standpoint of the church, it would be difficult to believe that uh, unity exists if it did not have external manifestations. What uh, Dan read to us this morning from uh, Philippians gives us some of these manifestations. Uh, and they are being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So being of the same mind or being like-minded is unanimity of thought. It's not unanimity of thought about earthly things like facilities and dress and things like that, but unanimity of thought with regard to doctrine uh, as indicated by other usages of being like-minded in the scripture. Our salvation renews our mind and we have the mind of Christ and we should be united in what we think about the things of Christ and the things of the church. This is what being of the same mind is. It's not a shared emotion, but shared thinking. And that takes us back to sound doctrine again in the word of God and in our statement of faith. This is why we have a statement of faith, which you can also find um, on our website, just as you can find uh, the member's covenant. And this is why we discuss our statement of faith at our membership matters workshop. It's the foundation of what we believe and therefore the foundation of our unity. The second uh, manifestation of unity is having the same love. We love him because he first loved us, and we love each other because he first loved us. And love is a natural outpouring of sound doctrine and the fruit of the Spirit. It's so important that John tells us that it is a non-negotiable mark of a true Christian. Loving the, bro the brothers is not optional. It's a non-negotiable mark of a real Christian. And third, uh, uh, Paul says in Philippians that uh, our internal unity is externally declared by being in full accord. 
And the translation of this comes from um, a Greek word that means one soul. So it actually wants to say one souled, S-O-U-L-E-D. People who consider themselves as one without regard to race, gender, political affiliation, slave, free, or anything else. And then he returns to one mind again for emphasis. So this is uh, the unity of the spirit. It's an internal unity of common life produced by a sovereign act of the Holy Spirit founded on sound doctrine. So now that we know what it is, we have to look at why we need to work and pray for it. And finally, how do we do that? So let's go to our second question. Why work and pray for it? Uh, that is also, why is it in our members' covenant? Why is it that important? First of all, I want to point out what by now should be obvious, that we work and pray to maintain it and not to create it. As we've already discussed, it's created in us internally by the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, but its external or visible manifestations can be strengthened or damaged by our conduct. In the same way as a Christian <coughs> lives a godly life that backs up his profession of faith but can at times fall into sin that damages his testimony, but without actually losing his salvation, the presence of this unity is maintained by God, but our disobedience can make it very difficult for us or for outsiders to discern it, but it does not mean that it's no longer there. So I want to briefly look at five reasons that we need to maintain the unity of the spirit. So five reasons that we need to maintain the unity of the spirit. The first one is that we need to do so out of gratitude and affection to God. Gratitude and affection to God. Let's go back to the first verse of uh, Philippians 2, which was read to us a bit earlier. It starts with, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. And then he goes on to talk about the unity. So the word if here is not the if that wants to see if something is or isn't, but it's, uh, it's actually since. So what Paul is saying that since we have a salvation that is guaranteed in Christ, and since we have a comfort about the forgiveness of our sins, and since we have experienced the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and received the love of God, then our response of gratitude and love to him would be this manifestation of the unity that we enjoy. And while we're here, I just want to mention that when we discuss how to go about doing this in a few minutes, we will not be talking about a uh, list of uh, things that we are going to legalistically accomplish in the flesh, but we're going to be talking about a love response to what God has already done for us. Second reason, so the first one was gratitude and affection to God. The second reason we need to pray for this unity is that it's commanded in Scripture. Paul tells us to do it in Ephesians 4.3, and as we said, he bases it on the doctrinal foundation that he discussed previously in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians. Chapter 1, verse 10 of Ephesians says that God's plan for the fullness of time was to unite all things in him, that is in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. So this unity was God's plan for us from the beginning. It brings him glory, which is his and should also be our goal. So for, for our own good, he commands us to do it, and that alone should be a good enough reason, even if I didn't mention anything else. 
And the third uh, reason is a uh, simple but awesome one, and that's found in Psalm 133, verse 1. That psalm says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. So the third reason that it's important to work and maintain, to work and pray to maintain the unity of the spirit is that it pleases God and his godly ones. So the first reason was out of gratitude and affection to God. The second was because it's commanded in scripture. Third, it pleases God and his godly ones. And the fourth reason is that it reflects God's character. We covered that a little bit while discussing Jesus' high priestly prayer and how he wanted us to have what he and the Father have. And Jesus, during his earthly life, talked about his oneness with God frequently. And it was also manifested during his baptism and during the transfiguration. And in many of his letters, Paul also goes out of his way to mention the Father and Son and Holy Spirit together. Additionally, it also reflects God's character in his desire to ensure the well-being of his son's bride, the church. Since this uh, unity, uh, as this unity is his plan for the church, we are told in Ephesians 4, uh, 11 through 16, don't turn there, I'm just going to read that real quick. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So this is telling us that the ministers that the Father has provided for the church are there to build it up, and the, the building up is towards the unity that Jesus had uh, discussed. It talks about love, it talks about all the members of the body being held together by joints. So it's all done for the protection and the maintenance of the church, which is Jesus' bride. And the last reason I want to mention, and that should greatly motivate us to work for the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, is that this unity uh, maintains the witness of the church to outsiders. And as John MacArthur puts it even more bluntly, the credibility of the gospel is built on the ground of the unity of the church. So I'm going to repeat that. The credibility of the gospel is built on the ground of the unity of the church. And this was not invented by either John MacArthur or myself, but was expressed by Jesus himself in the paragraph that we read in John 17. No need to turn back there. I'm going to reread just two verses, verse 21 and 23 of Jesus' high priestly prayer. Verse 21 reads that they, talking about us, Jesus talking about us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then verse 23 says that they may become perfectly one. Again, why? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is not an exaggeration, brothers and sisters. The world will know that Jesus was sent by the Father to redeem his children in part by watching us act in unity. And that's a great responsibility and a great motivation to pray and work for that unity. So these are at least five reasons why uh, we should work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and why we have that item on our covenant. And that brings us to our final uh, question, how do we maintain the unity of the Spirit? So the Apostle Paul tells us that the unity of the Spirit is maintained in the bond of peace, meaning that peace is what ties or binds everything together to allow the external display of the inner unity that we enjoy. So we naturally have to talk about how that peace is maintained if we want to talk about how the unity is maintained and how it's to be cultivated. And our same with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So here the Apostle Paul gives us at least four characteristics that each Christian should cultivate in order to maintain that unity. And these are humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. And before we examine any of these briefly, I just want to remind you of what I said earlier and that is, in these four items are not a checklist for the flesh to accomplish, but they are fruit of the Spirit. And they are springing out of our love to God because he first loved us. So let's look at the first one, humility. And uh, the first one is uh, obviously the opposite of pride. It's a low opinion of one's importance. If you look at it in the dictionary, it just says the quality of being humble, which doesn't really help. Then you have to look at humble. But it's a low opinion of one's importance and the absence of assertion of one's rights. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones equates it with the first beatitude in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.3. You don't need to turn there, but it talks about the poor in spirit. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this should be a characteristic of every Christian. And I don't need to explain how thinking less of one's importance and being ready not to assert one's rights can prevent conflict and contribute to peace and unity in the, in the church. But as an example, I'm sure you're sadly aware that some churches have experienced disunity uh, about all sorts of things, including the color of the carpet and the choice of hymn book and all, all, um, uh, all different uh, items. And assuming that neither choice contradicts the word of God, humility calls on a brother, even when he's convinced that he has made the right decision or that he has the better uh, opinion, uh, to not perceive that the other choice uh, is a personal insult to him or that it's a worse position than the one he holds, but to cede to the other brother or sister of the opposite opinion and not to insist on what he wanted. And just as a quick aside, um, because uh, this is against what our culture believes, but uh, I just want to point out that being humble does not in any way imply being weak, but is consistent with great strength of faith and character, and it's compatible with physical and military might. 
so we only have to think of Moses and what he accomplished in 40 years while at the same time being described by the word of God as the most humble person, not to mention Jesus himself and what he did in 33 years on earth and his death on the cross and being humble so as not to count equality of God as a thing to be grasped. So humility is not weakness, it's actually strength. And the second characteristic after humility that Paul tells us about is gentleness. And that's referred to in some translations as meekness. It's, um, it would be described as an inner mildness that refuses to intentionally offend others. And just as important, actually more importantly, it refuses to be offended by others. So it's an inner mildness that refuses to offend others and refuses to be offended by them. It's the third beatitude in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says in Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And again, it doesn't take much or actually any imagination to discern um, how um, somebody who doesn't like offending people and doesn't let anything they say or do offend him will be a person who will be maintaining peace and contributing uh, to the unity. Uh, but uh, take as an example a brother or sister who says something that in the flesh I would consider to be hurtful. Although discussing it with them at some point uh, may be wise, I need to make the decision first that I refuse to be offended by it and either let it go at that stage or discuss it with them out of love and mutual edification and not with the goal of restoration for my hurt feelings. The third characteristic, so the first one was humility, um, and then the second one was gentleness or meekness. The third characteristic is patience. And I really like the old King James equivalent of this, which calls it long-suffering and gives us the definition just from that. It literally means to be willing to suffer for a long time. And when used in reference to God, it usually refers to his re uh, readiness to hold off punishment. It's also a willingness on our part to take offenses against us while withholding revenge, anger, or any other payback. So for example, if somebody in the church acts in an unkind uh, manner towards us, the flesh wants revenge and payback right away, but patience waits for an indefinite period of time for the repentance and restoration of the unkind brother without setting any deadlines or any ultimatums. So patience, long-suffering. So that's the third one. The first one was humility. The second one was gentleness or meekness. <clears throat> and the fourth one that Paul gives us here um, is forbearance in love. And that's defined as a to fight against the temptation to return evil for evil or to request payback. And there is within it, for the people that have studied this, there's a very important uh, underlying meaning in that. And it includes the concept of actually making an excuse for someone else's behavior. So that is not going up to confront them and seeing if they can come up with an excuse themselves for what they did and whether that excuse is satisfactory to me or not. But before I even go up to them, I go out of my way to make that excuse on their behalf out of love for them. And in that, I kill within me the temptation to perceive that my rights are more important and that I need to take revenge. So 
So that's the fourth one, forbearance and love, which is fighting against the temptation to return evil for evil. And it includes the desire to make an excuse for the other person for what they did against me. So these are four characteristics that we need to cultivate as the Holy Spirit produces them in us. And we need to do so according to the text with eagerness. That's in um, uh, four to Ephesians 4.2 as well. The word here has a meaning of diligence or being in a hurry or doing one's best. So it's definitely not an afterthought in the Christian life. These qualities have to be cultivated with eagerness. The work and prayer of maintaining the unity of the spirit should be of utmost importance to the Christian and should be done with faithfulness and a desire to excel at it. So as members of um, Hagerstown Church, we have covenanted together that we will work and pray for the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And we saw that this is an internal unity of common life produced by a sovereign act of the Holy Spirit founded on sound doctrine. We are called to maintain it out of gratitude to God, obedience to scripture, to maintain the church's witness, and most importantly, because God commands it. And we do so by eagerly cultivating the bond of peace by intentionally practicing humility, gentleness, peace, and bearing with one another in love. So this is very difficult. And as one wise brother in my life group said last week, this covenant would be a burden were it not for Jesus. And he is right. None of these characteristics come naturally to us. But when the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us, it gives us the power to mortify or to kill this indwelling sin and the sins that are the opposite of what we need to do uh, to maintain this unity. They are the opposite of uh, patience. They are the opposite of humility and all that. And with time, its fruit, including the characteristics would be, that we just mentioned, would begin to grow stronger and establish themselves better. But as we are being conformed to the image of Christ little by little, we are going to fall along the way. And we will frequently not be humble, nor gentle, nor patient, nor, nor bear with one another in love. Our sin will result in the disruption of the bond of peace and the witness of our unity will be impaired. So what do we do then? Well, Pastor Josh answered that last week. Um, we have to confess and repent. First John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we have to confess and repent and know that our loving Father in heaven will restore and strengthen us. You may fall and you will fall many times, but God's grace is way bigger than our sin and there is no end to his mercy or uh, to, towards his children. And in the same manner that we are forgiven generously and without limit by God, we should also forgive each other generously and without limits when we stumble in these steps. And in that way, even our response to our sins and the sins of others in the congregation will be used by God to strengthen the bond of peace when Satan had intended that to weaken it. If, however, we think that uh, what we talked about today is, is rather silly and, or you, you have no desire to obey it, then I would really strongly urge you to examine the foundations with urgency. This is something that we are commanded to do in Scripture. 
In 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you, you fail to meet the test. So as Pastor Josh told us last uh, week, one of his points said, true Christians will submit to God's commands. And this exercise of the maintenance of the unity is a command from God. And somebody who does not wish with all their heart to obey it and fulfill it should test themselves to see if they are really in the faith. Those of you or us who are listening um, and have not come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, uh, some of what I just said today may sound a bit strange. You have heard me talk about putting... Uh, others ahead of myself or ahead of ourselves making excuses for their offenses and thinking less of ourselves. This is the opposite of what we are taught outside of scripture and it may also be the opposite of what we have uh, been practicing in our lives. So I want you to remember Jesus thinking less of himself and dying on the cross so that your pride, selfishness and impatience may be forgiven. Come to him and repent and confess your sins to him and put your faith in his finished work. He lived a perfect life on your behalf and he died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. And he will forgive you and save you and his Holy Spirit will forever unite you to his church. So don't delay. And once you are united to his church, you will join us in working together and praying together for the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the peace that you have given us with yourself and with each other through your Son, Jesus Christ, and the work of your Holy Spirit in us. We confess, Father, that by nature we are not equipped to accomplish any of the things that we talked about today, but we thank you that your Holy Spirit, which dwells in us, can give us victory. And we ask that you strengthen us and empower us by your Spirit to always work and pray for the maintenance of the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace and for our congregation to be characterized by peace because that pleases you and glorifies your name. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen.